the gospel. And perhaps a lot of us are starting to see that as we go through this series. And I think in a few weeks when we wrap it up, we'll really see how accurate that designation is. But for today, I want to look at verse 28 in detail because I think if the whole parable is the gospel within the gospel, then this verse is the gospel within the gospel within the gospel. So we've gone three levels now. We are in inception and we'll get out of it soon. All right. So we're three levels down. But honestly, in two simple sentences, Christ lays out the entire biblical narrative. So, but he became angry and refused to go in. This is the elder son. This is humanity. This is our kingdom. But the father went out and entreated him. This is the father. This is God. This is God's kingdom. We live in our kingdom. God wants us to live in his. We do things our way. We transact. We try to appease God. We insist on getting what we deserve or insist on others getting what they deserve. We're really into that, that one. God does things his way, grace. He insists on giving us what we don't deserve. We reject God and his kingdom. He does not reject us. Instead, he comes to find us where we are and bring us into his kingdom. Pride defines our kingdom. Humility defines God's. We embrace thrones of glory. God embraces the cross. The gospel within the gospel within the gospel. It's beautiful. So now, what we want to do is let's, let's, let's consider the details in depth because, again, cultural context is so necessary if we are really going to grasp the grotesque violation of relationship that this is. As this, the son refusing to go into the party is an absolutely grotesque violation of relationship. And we need the cultural context in order to grasp the magnificence of grace as evidenced in the father's willingness to go out and implore his son to join the party. See, what happens here is we have nothing here in the West, nothing in the West at all that could help us understand this total violation of relationship. Does this go up there? There we go. Between that and my glasses, I'm like standing on a ship going back and forth trying to figure out where my notes are here. So here's the thing. Even in our most intimate, familiar relationships here are so much more casual than the formality of the Middle Eastern relationship at this time between the father and the rest of the family. The father was a central figure of life, and as such, he was due honor and respect. This is completely different, completely different than anything we would know here. So here's an ancient story that will give us an example, perhaps, of what's going on here. So in the book of Esther, okay, the king throws a party, but his wife, Queen Vashti, refuses to come, just to come to the party. The king became furious, burned with anger, and he basically divorced her and also took away the throne from her. She was no longer the queen, okay? Believe it or not, the similar expectations would have been in place here at this situation here. Any father in this situation would have burned with anger too, all right? So remember, we've talked about this earlier on when we were looking at the parable, the ramifications of shame in this shame culture, right? It is better for a man that he should cast himself into a fiery furnace than that he should put his fellow to shame in public, all right? And that's just an equal, a peer, putting a peer to shame. The son 
here, right? The son is what? Putting his father to shame. That figure that should be revered and held up in public, and he's putting to shame. The male members of the household are expected to come and greet guests of the father whenever he has a gathering. All right, so you ha- we have to understand that. To not do this is not only a terrible insult to the guests, it's a terrible insult to the father. Because the guests who are dishonored will also blame the father as well as the disobedient son. All right? So here's what we need to understand here that has often been missed. The older son knows exactly what he is doing by refusing to go in. Okay? This isn't like in our culture. You know, oh, I'm mad at my sister, so I'm not going to her graduation party or I'm not going to her wedding. That's not what this is. Okay? What is happening here? This is a direct attack on the father. This is a public announcement that the son has no respect for his father and no relationship with him. All right? This is huge. And I think because of this lack of understanding of culture, that's why in the West over the last couple hundred years, the story has been lost to what really Christ was getting at. We turned it purely into a story about the sinner is the younger son, and this is just a struggling non-sinner. No, they are both equally lost. This story was always known as the lost sons in the East and in the Middle East and in ancient times. We turned it into our Sunday school story about one lost son and a jealous or angry other older brother. That's not what is happening. All right? Check this out. Bailey points out, a traditional Middle Eastern father in the past would immediately order the servants to overpower the disobedient son in the courtyard, drag him by force to a side room, and lock him up. A grim-faced father would then proceed with the banquet. After the guests had left, the oldest son would be brought out, held down by the servants, and beaten. You're starting to get what a grotesque violation of relationship this is with the older son? This is unbelievable. And Christ knew exactly what he was doing. So Ibn al-Tayyib, the ancient Middle Eastern scholar that we quote a lot, puts this totally into perspective for us. The older son demonstrated maliciousness of character and meanness. He has no love for his brother and no appropriate respect for his father. His position in this regard is equivalent to the grumbling of the scribes and Pharisees against Christ for his acceptance of sinners. This is the mic drop moment. If Christ was now, this is when he would just drop the mic and walk away. Because now his audience, the scribes and Pharisees, remember? The scribes and Pharisees are grumbling. Let me tell you a story. Boom. They just showed up in the story. Up until this point, the scribes and Pharisees, yeah, that younger brother. That's what we're talking about right there, that guy. Oh, here you are. Boom. You're as lost as he is. And this starts to get at the heart of the matter. We touched on it last week when we watched that fantastic, whoever was here, that fantastic Donut Hole Gang video. Oh, Siraj and Ram, you missed it. It's an absolute classic. And it was this kid's thing. And, and the older brother doing this kid thing was singing how unfair it was that the father loved the younger brother. How just completely unfair it was. But that's the point. Grace is so unfair. It has a habit of, it has a way of really putting people off. The Pharisees and scribes hated Jesus, killed Jesus for the way he received sinners. The elder son hates his father for the way he received the prodigal. 
Now, before we get into the Father's amazing act of grace, which, so if, are, you, are you catching this incredible, grotesque violation of relationship? When the Father does what he does, that, that's another unbelievable, amazing act of grace, just like he had to save the younger son, too, with that complete laying aside of his own life. But before we get in that, I want to point out a couple more culturally relevant things to know. Because it helps us understand the older son better and what's going on inside. And remember, the older son is a mirror if we are courageous enough to look into it. It's us, and it's okay that it's us. And if we're willing to look at it closely and honestly and see ourselves in this story, this clearly, it will help us. It will. Because we're all on a journey home, right? And God is entreating us home, so it can help open our eyes to maybe the ways we have blinded ourselves. Remember about the older son. What did we talk about last week? His actions come from his commitment to the truth he believes. His actions come from the commitment to the truth he believes. He doesn't believe in grace. Okay? Keep this in mind. So let's look in. So firstly, when the father divided the estate... This is how it would have worked. Okay, remember, he had to divide the estate. Remember that? So he gave up the estate. Half to his younger son, half to his older son. Then the younger son went away. So what that meant was the older son was in charge of the estate. But this is what it meant. This is how this worked out back then. The, old, the father still could do what he felt was best for the estate. Okay? And he could spend the profits of the estate. This is important. Any profit that was not spent was added to the estate itself. The estate, the estate belonged to the elder son. A feast of this magnitude, remember, he's got at least the whole village here because he killed a fatted calf, so that's 100 pounds of meat. So he's got over 200 people here, right? That is obviously doing what to some of those profits? And it's the older son's estate. See where this furiousness comes from? And I think this point really gets to the foundational level of human sin and what makes us a fallen species, okay? In the very beginning, the story we tell to help understand where the fall came from and where the separation of relationship came from, God said, you can have anything you want. Just don't have that. He had provided everything. But somehow, some way, we felt it wasn't enough and we needed more. Okay? Since then, what happens is we function in our kingdom, which is outside the party, right? In this mine, not ours. Or if we're a group, us, not them. Mentality, right? Now, in our human kingdoms, that is completely understandable. I will never argue with someone arguing for human kingdom. Um, Dave, I'm not an English person. My head just lost that word. Anyway, if you're arguing from practical ways about the human kingdom, I get it. There is a, not a limitless supply of anything in this world. Everything has limits in this world, right? So if you are in our kingdom, in human kingdoms, then I get it that you live with a mind, not them, or an us, not them mentality. And this is what has happened cyclically throughout the world. Right now, sadly... We are in the midst of another worldwide descent into hypernationality, 
hyper-nationalism, hyper-exclusivity, isolationism, protectionism, all of that. I get it from a human kingdom perspective. I'm not going to argue with anyone on a human kingdom perspective. There is a limitless, there is a very limited supply of oil left. If your well-being depends on oil, then I guess you should be an isolationist. And there is only so much food in the world, and there is only so much clean water, et cetera, et cetera. I get that human descent. Okay, and that's where the world is right now. It's grotesque. This is right where the world was pre-World War II. And I'm not making any political statements here at all. But here comes the statement. We're Christians. We don't live in that kingdom. We live in God's kingdom. So what is wrong with us? Fine. Well, but David, it's temporary right now. Okay, fine. But I don't think that's the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative that Christ came and said, it's not about me, it's about you, and that's why I'm going to die. The King of kings, Lord of lords, the great I am, fed us with his own body. That is limitless. But here's what happens. There are theologies that only have a certain number of seats at the eternal banquet. Guess where those theologies came from? Not from the Bible, but I understand where they come from. Older brother, you're using my prophets. And so there's a limited amount of seats at the eternal banquet. No, there's not. No, God is very clear. Whoever will come can come. We'll just keep adding seats. And we'll just keep killing fatted calves. And making more wine. Which the first thing he does when he shows up in the flesh after those millennia being in the flesh before when we weren't even around on the earth and he shows up and what's the first thing he does? He makes wine to show them, no, there's plenty. Why are you arguing about this? Why are you fighting? Mary, why are you all worked up? I got this. So my question isn't about world politics. My question is to us as individual Christians who claim to follow Jesus, who said there is a limitless supply of life. Why are we outside the party mad that God is extending grace and love to everyone. Why? I'm asking myself. I'm asking you. I don't know why. I, 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 I know why for myself. Because I'm a sinner. That's why. Theologies and such that allow you to stay outside the party, please run from them as fast and as far away as you can. Please. Brian, we just closed that. It sounds like their choirs got out and just coming in. Okay, second. Sorry, that was way off my notes, but I think that's so fascinating to understand what's going on and look at ourselves. Now, secondly, and there's, here's where it really gets harsh, all right? So get ready, buckle up. At feasts like this, Bailey writes, it was common for the eldest son to stand and serve the meal as the head waiter. Of course, unlike the other servants, he joins in conversation with the seated company. So by stationing the oldest son as a kind of hovering headwaiter, the family is in effect saying, you, our guests, are so great that our son is your servant. Is that beautiful? That's beautiful. I bet it's starting to dawn on some people. Who's one of the guests at this party? The younger son. The pro... You know how offensive this is to the oldest son? How unbelievably offensive this is? 
He can't even believe the father has forgiven and reconciled his, the prodigal without demanding some sort of payment and punishment first. He can't believe he's forgiven him without some sort of contract for future good behavior. He hates grace. There is no way he is going to go in and serve his younger brother. Not a chance. And isn't this the rub with us? Isn't this the rub with us? Let's be honest. It's hard enough for us to believe in grace. Because we still think we should get what we deserve. And so when we look deep inside and we're honest, we're like, oh man, we don't deserve grace, right? Because we know. But that's the whole point. We don't deserve grace. We just have to receive it. So even when we can get ourselves to the place where we receive grace, it remains difficult to believe in it because we can't stand when people worse than us get forgiven for things we would never do. And there's where a whole bunch of theologies come from, isn't it? You know, this is the whole reason I'm not a universalist. And I have lovely universalist friends, and I love them. But to me, the God of Calvin and the God of universalists are the same thing. They don't give us a choice in the matter. And so some of my best universalist friends are always arguing with me, yeah, but, but once people see it, of course they're going to say yes. And I'm like, yeah, nope. <laughs> because guess what? Once you see past the welcoming arms of God, and that person you hate so much is there? Oh, wait, and it gets worse. And right behind them, there's a towel and a tray that you have to pick up and serve him? You're not going in. This is why I love C.S. Lewis' book, The Great Divorce. People get brought to heaven on day trips because God loves them so much. Come on, look how good it is. Don't go back. That needs to get back on the bus. People hate grace. We hate grace. And the real reason we hate grace and reject this God is because if we admit grace is the final reality, the way of life, then we know we have to live it for others. And serving sinners, especially those who have sinned directly against us, is not what we do in our kingdoms. Okay, enough of the bad news. Thank God there's another kingdom. Whew. I was going to end there, and I was like, I can't end there. No one will ever come back. His father came out and entreated him. Oh. Now, last week, I, didn't, I blew off a word study because it was so boring. This week, I want to do a word study because this is so fascinating to me. Okay? The word here that he uses for entreat is this word. Parakaleo. Kaleo is a Greek word meaning call. Now, here's the thing. Different prepositions really change the meaning of this. This is fascinating, so I hope you stay with me. All right? For example, if you put an E-N, that's call against or accuse. An E-I-S is call in or invite. E-P-I, call by name. P-R-O, provoke or challenge. P-R-O-S, summon or call to oneself, as in calling a servant or subordinate. That's what the older son did when he called the boy over. That's what that, that's what that word is there in the original. S-Y-N, call together. P-A-R-A, our word, and treat or try to reconcile. Now, given what we know of the son's violation of the relationship, we might expect to find the father P-R-O-S, right? Summoning or calling to oneself. We would have thought that word would be there. Nope, that's not the word that was there. Or maybe P-R-O, if he had done that, provoking or challenging, or even probably E-N, 
calling against or accusing, right? That would have been a good word to put in that place because of what the older son had done. But instead, nope, the word that is used is para. I'm going to let Bailey cite Robinson on this. This is powerful. Para merely means beside or alongside. The father tries to entreat his son. He calls on him to stand alongside his father, to look at the world from the father's perspective. Paul uses the same word in 2 Corinthians 5.20. We beseech you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Amazingly, this same kind of beseeching is the course of action the father chooses in the face of his angry and rebellious son. How beautiful is that? That is good news. Oh, good news. So for the second time this day, the father endures shame and humiliation. He empties himself. He lays down his own life to go out and find another lost son. Ah. Remember, the expectations of the villagers gathered at the feast would have been for a far different response, right? They would have wanted the son tied up and beaten. To move with mercy and grace towards such a disobedient son was completely unheard of and unacceptable. But the father doesn't care. His love for his son is all that matters to him. Let me say that a different way for those of us that really need to hear this right now. God's love for you is the only thing that matters to him. That's it. Jesus was making perfectly clear to his own audience that God is the exact same way His love for his children trumps every other concern. He is willing to even die to bring us home. Now, Ibn al-Tayyib captures this scene with startling beauty, and this speaks to all of us. And this is why I said we don't need to be afraid to look at the older son and see ourselves there. Look at the heart of this father. It is full of tenderness and love in that he left the banquet the guest and his younger son to plead with his older son to come in. It is as if his own joy is incomplete as long as one of his children is grieving. He does not rebuke the older son on his hardness of heart or his inappropriate sensitivities. In like manner, the Heavenly Father desires the entrance of the scribes and Pharisees into the kingdom of heaven as much as the tax collectors and sinners. Thus he demonstrated long-suffering and intense desire for them to come to him even as did this earthly father. Yes. And Bailey, in his own words, comments brilliantly, the father must go out to his boy in humiliation if he wants a son. If he is satisfied with a servant, self-emptying suffering is unnecessary. He can have the older son dragged in, tied up, and later punished. But this will cause great bitterness and deeper estrangement. We do that to Christians, don't we? And I'm sorry if it's been done to you, because that's not God. If he overlooks the incident, he is finished as a father, for the son's next move would be even more threatening to the father's authority. The father does the only thing that can open the door to genuine repentance and restoration. He pays the price of reconciliation. Once again, incarnation and atonement meet. The gospel within the gospel within the gospel. Amen. And thanks to you.